not only is the temple ascending back up into Eden, right? Because that's it's structured, it's the same pattern as Eden, right? Like you, you walk from the land, and you walk from in the, the land of Eden, or the world, you walk into the land of Eden, then you walk into the to the garden, right? That's that's what happens when you walk from the court of the Gentiles, because the world is where the Gentiles are at. And you walk into the you know, holy place where the garden's at, and that's why you've got the menorah there. And then you walk into the place where God dwells, that's where the garden's at. Um, not only is it ascending back up the holy mountain of Eden, but it's also an ascending the seven heavens all the way up to the imperial where God's at. And that is amazing. That's that's a, a, a shocking revelation to be. Welcome to this week's edition of the Sword and Staff. I'm one of your hosts, Josh Robinson. And joining me today, as always, is the man, the myth, the legend himself. Sketchy Richie. <laughs> the dramatic doing? pause on the and. There was. Very dramatic pause. Um, and on this week's edition of the Sword and Staff, we're going to be getting to uh, an episode that I have been talking about for months now. We finally got to it. Marian apparitions and astrology. Oh, welcome to it! Wow, yeah, okay. So we we will be diving a little bit into kind of astrological type stuff because we're going to be talking about seven heavens today. So, Richie, how long have I been telling uh, you? Not sketchy enough. <laughs> not sketchy enough. How long have I been telling you I've wanted to do this edition? Uh, for a literal month. Yeah, I've been wanting to do it for a long time. And hey, what better time than Christmas, right? This episode is going to be dropping just days before Christmas. This is going to be our Christmas gift to you guys. Christmas gift and to I, you guys. know, I thought that it connected because hey, Christ is born, and there's stars doing stuff, right? Leading leading wise men to him, and uh, you know, so we're going to be talking about stars and planets and, and all of that stuff today. So. Is it more that it really connects, or is it just like this is the first open space that we've had <clears throat> in the recording schedule in a long time? Well, it's or is a, it both? It's a little bit of both. Okay. Yeah, we've been doing a whole lot of collabs here recently, and I've been itching to get this. I think every week I've been messaging Richie like, all right, what do we got this week? We got collabs this week, or are we good on the seven heavens? Yeah, it's literally been almost every day like, hey, yeah, is it time yet? Yeah, pretty much. And so, uh, but uh, Richie, I didn't, I, I forgot to ask you, how are you feeling today, pal? Hmm. That's a that's a, a loaded question for a heart guy. That's like, I don't know where to go with that. But I'm here. I'm good. I'm okay. Okay. Good deal. I'm excited for the episode, especially after the conversation we had earlier in the day, and I sort of got an idea of what exactly wanted to cover. 
and yeah. where you wanted to go with it. You thought so, you thought that we were talking about the uh, the angelic hierarchy. I think. Yeah, I was like, I think we've we've done that a little bit, but I was, okay. I was like, oh no, oh no, no, we haven't. We have not covered this. Let her rip, tater chip. Let her rip, tater chip. Uh, but uh, we'll go ahead and kind of get in today's edition. So we're going to be talking about the seven heavens. So I just want to start off with a question to to listeners. Oh boy. Did you know that there is more than one heaven? Yes. Did you know that the Bible talks about that there is more than one heaven? Yes. Okay, Richie knew, but do you know? Because there is. There's more than one heaven. And I think that that a lot of Christians... Did even pagan Richie know these things? I guarantee it. I guarantee it that pagan Richie knew about it because the Babylonians sure did. I wish more people found that frustrating. (laughs) I really do. That Pagan Richie knew about something. Yeah, that they Pagan didn't. Richie had a better Christian worldview than most Christians do. Oh wow, that's a that's fighting words right there, son. Well, I mean, just in a, like in an understanding of like spiritual things, like these categories that we unpack here week in week out. Mm-hmm. Like you would think that this is stuff for the home team, like something that Christians have that they would. I don't know, just have a better grasp on it than what they do. Right. No, yeah, I understand. And I think we'll get into some reasons why that's so today. Um, I think a lot of it has to do with just disenchantment as a whole. Um, I think that, uh, I mean, we're going to be basically talking about cosmology today. And uh, I think that a lot of the reasons why Christians don't understand this is because they have a very materialistic disenchanted cosmology in the Big Bang Theory. Um, Oops. I probably just made some people mad about that. I mean, I just basically said that me as a pagan, that I had a better spiritual worldview than most Christians out there. They're already mad. Yeah. But let it challenge them to do better. (laughs) There you go. Um, So let's kind of get into it. So before we begin, we need to talk about source material. Right? Yeah. Let's let's first talk about the... The book that has been printed out for my convenience yeah, and easy reading right here. Yeah, I've given Richie a stack of papers uh, to look at today. He felt like I was giving him a presentation. Yeah, <clears throat> But, um, you know, some of the source material that we're using today uh, that really kind of gets into this whole Seven Heavens deal is um, obviously the Bible is one of them. And apart from that, though, we're going to be looking at... Um, some C.S. Lewis stuff, some Tolkien stuff, and then really diving in to Michael Ward's Planet Narnia, The Seven Heavens in the Imagination of C.S. Lewis. Um, Michael Ward is a chaplain at St. Peter's College in Oxford. Um, very, very smart man. He also wrote The Narnia Code as well, which is kind of, if I'm understanding correctly, I'm actually reading through it right now. I've read through Planet Narnia. But um, it's kind of, if I'm not mistaken, kind of a layman's version uh, of Planet Narnia. That's what Narnia Code is. So I'm, I'm reading through it right now because it's a little bit more succinct, I think, than Planet Narnia is. But we've got that. And then we've also got uh, the old Italian Dante, <clears throat> the Divine Comedy. And we're really going to be looking at Dante's Paradiso. And I actually got Richie my second copy of it. Yeah, it's just it's. I mean, it's just you know everybody's got a copy of that on their on their right. coffee table. And, and like, this particular version that I have um, right here in my hands is from 1865. 
Oh, so it's not the original handwritten no, account, huh? Unfortunately, I don't have that. I, but, I was fully expecting that. But uh, the the one that I have here is by Scorched um, from the Flames of Hades on his journey into the underworld. <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, the one that I have here in my hands is translated by Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. I also have a uh, a newer translation of that as well um, that has some notes in it. I'll see if I can find it here in my Kindle. It's extremely frustrating to me that it's on Kindle. Um, yeah, I've got a, a modern edition. I, I can't. I used to love Kindle books, but the older I get, I, I just can't. I mean, I've got to have it in my hand. I got to mark it up. You're like, I find frustration that this is not a part of my physical library. It's well, part of my digital. Yeah. I have, yeah, I have over 3,000 books on my Kindle. Oh, I know, yeah. And then that's not counting what I have on Logos either, and that's not counting what I actually have in my physical library. So um, it's it's a lot. I have a lot of books. But uh, the, the Kindle version that I have that's modern was translated by Alan uh, Mandelbaum. Looks like that's how you pronounce his name. It's got some interesting notes in it that are kind of that kind of help you out with it a little bit. But uh that's primarily the source material that we're going to get in today. So, um, so with that, yeah, you, know, you know, just your your average light reading. Yeah, average light. I, and, and let me let me say this too: I'm still reading Dante's Paradiso. Um, I'm probably a quarter of the way through it, but I I've read enough and listened enough that I kind of understand what he's doing with it at this point. And uh, we'll get to Dante a little bit more towards the end of today's episode and what exactly he's doing with the seven heavens in his Paradiso and how it's kind of, a, in some ways, a, it's not something that's novel that he's come up with. It's it's something that is very rooted in the Christian tradition, and he's kind of um, doing it par excellence, I guess you could say. But, um, but let's get into it. So, um, so in the Bible... Uh, we find that there is more than uh, one one heaven. And we see the Apostle Paul uh, talk about this in particular in 2 Corinthians 12.2. And so he's, he's given an account there, and he says that, uh, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was called up to the third heaven, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know, but God knows. Now, there's a lot of speculation as to who that man was. Uh, most scholars that I've come across say that it was Paul. He's probably referring to himself. But he's apparently talking about having a mystical experience in where he was caught up to get this, the third heaven. Now, here's the deal. If there's a third heaven... That means that there also has to be a second heaven and a first heaven, yep. right? And uh, whenever you start diving into the Christian tradition, you start to find out that they had a whole lot of thoughts about this and that this isn't something novel to Paul. Um, you actually see a stream of thought. And uh, you'll see a lot of people talk about three heavens. You'll see a lot of people talk about seven heavens. So the question is, is it three <clears throat> heavens or is it seven heavens, right? Is it ten? Is it Well, yeah, you see that too. And I'll say it's both. That three heavens and seven heavens or even ten aren't necessarily opposed to one another. You're like, yes. Yes, as, <laughs> as, 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 as we do here. Yep. Um, so here's kind of the way that I think of how this, how I frame this in my mind. Okay. So you've got the first heaven, 
right? And the first heaven is where, you know, the, the birds fly, right? The, the space in between the earth and, well, in middle, medieval thought, it's to, to the bottom of the moon, yeah, it's called the sublunar uh, sublunar uh, heaven, right? It's it's the place where the the birds fly. It's it's that is the first heaven, and uh, you know we we actually see scripture talk about the sky um, as the heavens, right? And so you know one of the places that you know you see that in particular is in um, give me just a second here. You see that in, um, I have to cut this space out, but hmm, looking at my post here. I mean, I'm just imagining the listener's perspective to to you processing this right right now. Well, you, you see that in places in scripture where it talks about the birds that fly in the heavens. Yep. Right. That's, that's the first heaven. And then we get to the second heaven, which encompasses the the seven heavens and the seven heavens are basically the celestial spheres right the it is the the planets okay these are the seven heavens and um let me say this um ancient the ancients have always viewed the heavens in this way okay so um like this isn't something novel that i'm saying um this goes all the way back to you know prior to the writing of the new testament um even you know in even in you know uh ancient judaism like if you read in the talmud um there are seven heavens uh there that they talk about and um you know some of the places that you see that referred to there in the talmud is you have um and I'm not saying that I agree with this take fully. I'm just throwing it out there as just a kind of source that people can look into. You have uh, Vilan, which is referred to in Isaiah 40 and 22. You have the Rakia, which is you know the the firmament, right? That's the whenever it talks about God put the firmament, you know, to divide the waters from the waters. The yeah. Hebrew word there is Rakia. Um, yeah. You see that in Genesis 1:17. Then you have the the Shehakim. Which is mentioned in Psalm seventy-eight twenty-three. You have the Zebul, the Zebul mentioned in Isaiah sixty-three fifteen, First Kings eight thirteen. You have the Maon mentioned in Deuteronomy twenty-six fifteen, Psalm forty-two nine. The Makan mentioned in First Kings eight thirty-nine, Deuteronomy twenty-eight and twelve. And then the Araboth or the seventh heaven, where the seraphim and the throne of God are at. Um, so. Um, that's that's in traditional Jewish cosmology. Okay, now this also appears in other places too, in other sources like Enoch. And in Enoch, there's ten heavens. Okay, so now we've talked about first Enoch before. Again, let us go ahead and say we don't think that Enoch is. I was scripture. going to say I've seen an endless debate about things like this, especially this week, even. Right. So, yeah. So let us go ahead and say again we don't think that Enoch is scripture, but. Um, it is apparent that people who um, are writers in the New Testament were aware of it. They quote it. They make reference to it. Um, they don't seem to think that it's scripture, but they do seem to think that it contains some truth. And where it is speaking truthfully, they make reference to it. I think that's very simple to understand. Um, 
But in in second Enoch, so we've talked about first Enoch. We've not talked about second or third Enoch. Just people stop being purposely problematic. Just, just <laughs> let this one go. Nothing is problematic for you. Just though. let it You're go. You're sketchy, Richie. And that's right. You know. Uh, but in Second Enoch, gosh, if I take issue with something or if I think something's problematic, it's it's that's that's the apocalyptic things right there. That's that's something otherworldly. I don't even know what I would think would be problematic. Now that I think about it, well, it's funny that you say apocalyptic because Enoch is apocalyptic. I mean, <laughs> so in let's, Second, let's go for it. In Second Enoch, um, it it basically describes his mystical ascent uh, through the hierarchy of the ten heavens. So he ascends the celestial spheres, the, the, the heavens, right? And then the interesting thing is, is whenever you get into second Enoch, he passes even through the Garden of Eden in the third heaven. Hmm. So, yeah, so a lot of people ask the so question. So Eden was shifted metaphysically into or, this or third heaven. Well, if you take the Enochian view, I think it's that man has fallen, fallen, yeah, fallen, fallen so low yeah. um, that yeah. you know he's he was like this. I mean, Adam is like this star. You I mean, know, in the heavens, yeah, and he's casted down. But I mean, either way, it's basically the same thing. Whether yeah. he's going up or it's coming down, it's yeah, same kind of thing. Yep. And then he ends up, you know, all the way going up to the tenth heaven. Uh, where he meets the Lord, you know, face to face. And so this just goes to show you that this stream of thought, um, it's very, very ancient. It's its not something that's just a, a medieval invention. So do we just throw a wrench in the gears of all the, the guys over there looking for the, the lost Garden of Eden over there in, yeah, in the Middle so. East somewhere? Yeah, like tracing take... the Tigris and Euphrates back and trying to find yeah. the... <laughs> yeah, if you take the Enochian view, then... Yeah, yeah. it's, it's an, on an interdimensional plane somewhere with... Yeah, yeah. yeah homie, uh, you need to go to Venus to find it. <laughs> Listen, I have ways. You have ways. I have ways of getting you there. It's yeah. just a matter of, are you willing to take them? Um, that's probably a big negatory, Captain. So, uh, but take that reenchantment pill. Re- take that reenchantment pill. We don't want that reenchantment pill. That's the dark <laughs> reenchantment pill right there, man. Uh, but um, I say we have I'll, our reenchantment pills that we present with sword and staff. But I have the the back alley ones that the dark you can see the me dark in private. Yeah, the dark <laughs> dark reenchantment pills that yeah. you get in the back alleys. Go beyond. Um, but. I mention all that to say this. This stream of ancient thought obviously gets carried over the New Testament because Paul's talking about the third heaven. Yeah. But it also gets carried over into the life of the church. Okay. And um, wait a minute. We got to stop right there. Yep. Like as we're talking about the seventh heaven and seven heavens, mm-hmm. there's this cheesy theme song that's going through my head. Did that used to be the name of a show? Like seventh, seventh heaven. heaven, ah, dude, it sounds it sounds familiar to me. I think so because yeah. I, I can hear the song in my head, and it's really distracting right now. Yeah, I'm sure that one of our our listeners will be able to confirm. And it's probably it. one of their favorite shows. And I guarantee just- <laughs> it. I guarantee. I guarantee it that the people who've watched Supernatural have probably also watched Seventh Heaven. No, I hope not. That was probably- if, it's, if if Seventh Heaven is anything like what I'm remembering, it it wasn't it wasn't anything. Wait. 
Wait, I think I might have just insulted <laughs> insulted the listeners majorly. Wait, was it Seventh Heaven? Kind of like one of those uh, it was like, cheesy kinda like Dawson's Creek yeah, kind of things. Okay, yeah, like yeah, I can yeah. hear the theme song in my head right yeah, now. That's right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I remember it now. Oh gosh, I'm sorry, guys. I was <laughs> going to say, whoa. Okay. Yeah. I, th- I hear Seventh Heaven and I immediately think supernatural. It, like, it wasn't that good. No, it wasn't even remotely like that. Yeah, no. I think it, uh, Dawson's Creek. Man, I haven't. I forgot about that. Now I'm getting. Like memories of Hanson and all kinds of stuff from like the nineties in my oh, yeah. head. Like wow. Um, but you know, back to my point here. Um, this stuff gets carried on into the Christian tradition. Okay, um, and not only that, but I mean, it it even finds, um, you know, it even finds its thought in you know Greco Roman stuff. Right, like even in Greco-Roman cosmology, they even structured the world in an exactly similar way. And so, we're going to spend some time kind of talking about the seven heavens here and kind of some of the thought behind them. Okay, so you know, in this ancient cosmology, um, the first celestial sphere um, is the moon. And in ancient, oh, Richie just pulled up Seventh Heaven for me. It's from 1996. Yeah, it looks super like Dawson's Creek. It is very, like, it is very sketchy. Yeah. And not in a good way. So uh, I'm making reference here to a lot of the work that Michael Ward has done in Planet Narnia. But um, so um, according to pre Copernican astronomers, okay, so Copernicus was the guy who found out that the that the spheres did not uh, rotate around the earth, but that um, they rotated around the sun, right? He was the guy who moved heliocentric. us from, yeah, he moved us from geocentrism yep. to heliocentrism. Um, but to pre-Copernian astronomers, uh, the name that was given to the moon was Luna. Okay. And so this is the first heaven. Okay. And so here's kind of how this works. This is kind of the ancient thought um, so this ties into the, some of the Greco-Roman mythology stuff that we've talked to, and it'll even tie into some Norse mythology here very shortly. Yep. Um, but Luna was the one who ruled over the night. She's the lesser light. Yep. Okay? Whereas the sun or soul to pre-Copernican astronomers um, ruled the day. He's the greater light. Okay. And, the thought was that Luna was thought to be an envious planet, right? She was discontented with her secondary role. So Luna, um, you know, she's she's uh, she doesn't like it that she doesn't get to rule the day and that she's not the greater light, basically. Okay? Just thinking about that, it's it's kind of shocking to me that the woke left has, especially in uh, modern like witchcraft, why they look at the moon. And the moon goddess and things like that is a symbol for feminism. Mm. When literally my understanding of magic was that the moon reflected the light and glory of basically her husband, of of mm. the sun. Yeah. So it wasn't that the moon was this champion in and of herself, but she right. sort of reflected right. that from, yeah. from the divine masculine. Yeah. So... I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> that's interesting. It, it doesn't line up there. So you also kind of see this stream of thought in Shakespeare. So in Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet, he said, Arise, fair sun, and kill the envious moon. 
her vestal livery is sick and green. So green is jealousy, right? Yeah. Um, somebody's <clears throat> a green, green with, with jealous, jealousy. Yep. Um, so you can see this thought here, like in Shakespeare, right? This was the common thought of the day. Um, now, we're going to get into some more of the stuff here about, about Luna or the moon. So the moon waxes and wanes approximately every 30 days. And so this period is roughly... Set the, your calendars. Right. Well, and, and here's the thing. This period of, of this waxing and waning is roughly the length of a woman's menstrual cycle. Yep. And so because of that, this is the reason why the moon became thought of as feminine. Okay. Oh, okay. I didn't know. I thought you were literally about to say this is why they call women lunatics when they're going through their menstrual cycles. Oh no! I thought that's where you were going with that. Oh, I was like Joshua. No, no I wasn't going there. But apparently, going to do that. You apparently, that you was not knew. where I was going at all. Okay. I was trying to prevent that. Mm. Well, yeah. we will get into the lunatic stuff here in a minute, but not yeah. with the the ladies. Listen, I was coming to bat for him. I was just making sure. Uh, okay. All right. All right. Well, there you go. Uh, if anybody has any complaints, uh, address Please them. Please forward them to my inbox. That's what I say. Forward them to Sketchy Richie. I love all of your complaints. Uh, yep. <laughs> oh my gosh! It just <laughs> reminded me of a uh, of a uh, what was it? Rick and Morty. He's like, you're. He's like, don't. He's like, your booze don't bother me. I see what makes you people cheer. Yeah. <laughs> right. Like, <laughs> boo me all you want. That's right. But uh, but so in Greek and Roman myth, um. The moon, this feminine planet, was associated with a, a number of different uh, goddesses, right? Like Selene, Artemis, Cynthia. And uh, so this kind of imagery, this goddess imagery, survived into medieval and even Renaissance time. Um, but another name that was given to the moon was Diana. And Diana was goddess the, of the hunt. That's right, the goddess of the hunt. And you can see why, right? The moon makes it possible to hunt during the night. And uh, so Luna's whiteness and the brightness of it um, made it natural to associate her with the metal silver. Yep. Right. Um, so actually, actually, the moon used to be a critical part in my practice, like the the cycles and seasons and waxing and waning of the moon. Yeah. And not only that, but the tools that I used to work with, altar tools, things like that, with the moon were silver. Like even the uh, lunar amulet that I had was sterling silver. Yeah. So if if anybody ever encounters you know people who are you know practicing paganism and they're using silver you know amulets and things like that and working with them, that's the reason why because yep. silver is associated with the moon. This is very nature based, right? Like these are based off of natural observations. Yep. Very alchemical. Yeah. Yeah. Um, now, uh, so we talked about it being, you know, uh, associated with the moon being associated with silver. So uh, Lewis in his Ransom trilogy, which is also called his Space Trilogy, people, he would hate that if you called it the Space Trilogy because, yeah, that's just this idea of this vacuous C. S. place Lewis in space. Yeah, he would he would say that space is a word that you know as uh, it, it makes it seem like that that place is. Um, like devoid, va- devoid yeah. of life, and it's vacuous, and yeah. and he he goes to bat against that in out of the silent planet whenever ransom ascends up. So um, yeah, he would hate calling it the space trilogy, but so that's why I call it his ransom trilogy. But he calls Luna Solva. So you can see there in Lewis's naming of Luna Solva, he's relating it to the 
to the the metal silver. Yep. Right. And also kind of keeping that Luna style name. So, but anyway, so the moon's effects upon the tides and the seas and the, you know, the, the, the tides of the seas and the rivers meant that Luna also became linked to the idea of wateriness. So yep. you've got all of these connections here, right? Like you've got feminine goddess, um, um, you've lesser light ruling over the night, um, femininity because of the the connection with the yeah you know, even with the two cycles main base metals gold and silver silver is the lesser of the two that's so, right yeah yeah and so here because of its um, effect upon the tides and the seas um, it gets linked to wateriness yep right <clears throat> and so um, and so here's kind of the thought and the wateriness links to emotions and right. people being called lunatics it was because they thought, even in scientific circles, that the changing patterns of the moon mm-hmm. had an effect over the the fluidity, the fluidity, the, the fluidity in the in the brain, right? And actually caused someone to be a lunatic, right? Yeah. So actually, scripture yep. scripture actually uses the word lunatics of of people. So in Matthew's gospel, in Matthew four twenty four, um, among the sick people that Jesus healed were were some people who had lost their wits, who were called lunatics. Do you remember when you used to get on me? Because I used to literally, I was like, blame the moon. Blame, blame the moon, the yeah. lunar cycle tonight. Yeah, Listen, right. right there. Yeah. Yeah, which that might be, like, that might make people uncomfortable. But yeah. we'll, we'll get into that a little bit because, um, yeah, that's going to be an interesting, I mean, interesting thing. What here. makes me, uh, me unco- there's nothing that makes me uncomfortable. Uh, that's I true. Mean, it's true. But, um, I should probably be more mindful of that. Like, freak people out constantly. <laughs> I'm saved. I promise. I'm like, saved. I promise. <laughs> like, but Jesus, yeah. he understands. Right there, you go. But you can see here, right? Like how the moon is connected to stuff like um, fluidity, right? Yeah. Um, unsupportiveness, right? Something that's not solid. Um, inconstancy, doubt, yeah, emotion. the sun right? is material and structure, right. the moon is immaterial right. and fluidity. Yeah, yeah, right. So this is this is how people viewed the moon. Like this is how people viewed Luna. You in can see how times. the ancients crafted the two into their masculine, feminine, mm-hmm. and you know, their divine feminine and divine masculine. Yeah. Like the two polarities, the sun and the moon. Yeah. And so interesting thing here is this is actually how Monday got its name. It actually, Monday is short for Moon Day. So this actually plays a bigger part in your life than what you people yeah, think that it waking does. waking up and just acting like a lunatic because it sucks because it's Monday. I there mean, you go. Let's, that's, let's, that's why you got a case of the Mondays. There you go. Right? The Moon Day. The Moon Days. Um, so, but... Um, I don't know, though. Those, those full moon days back in the day doing the sketchy things were... Kind of a far from a downtime. Yeah. Um, also, C.S. Lewis, if you've read um, Michael Ward's Planet Narnia, the, the book The Silver Chair embodies and expresses Luna's qualities of like envy, wateriness, confusion, lunacy, the boundary between certainty and mutability. Um, yes, people, that there, kind of there thing. are other. Uh, stories to Narnia than The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. That's right. Even though Disney has told you otherwise. Right. I yeah. think they skipped The Magician's <laughs> Nephew, went straight to... Uh, they did Prince Caspian, they did Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe, and, and then they did... Voyage of the, the Dawn, Dawn Treader, yeah. and then that was it. Yeah. But uh, So you can see, though, like, Silver Chair, 
right? The, yep. That's associated with the metal that is associated with the moon. And that's you see these qualities in that story. So, All right, so the second heaven is Mercury, okay? Um, and so Mercury... A little problematic planet in and of itself. Oh, yeah. So Mercury, according to pre-Copernican astronomers was known as the fastest moving of the planets whenever they observed it. So um, Mercury orbits the sun every 88 days. So a year is 88 days on on, uh, Mercury. Um, Whereas Venus takes 225 days. Obviously, the Earth takes 365 days. Mars takes 687 days. Jupiter takes 12 years. And Saturn takes 29 years. So Mercury is the fastest of the planets. And so because of uh, Mercury's rapidity, it became thought of as the messenger of the gods. Yep. He's de- usually depicted as uh, having wings on his cap and Basically on his heels. Basically Hermes. Basically, yeah, yep. right. Yep, that's, that's yep. Wait, isn't that his Roman name is Mercury? Mercury? Yeah, Gr- uh, Hermi- uh, yeah, Hermes is the Greek, the Greek, the yeah. Greek name for him. Yep. Um, but um, so basically, here's kind of how this works, okay? So Mercury's lightness and quickness carries over to the metal that he's associated with, which is obviously Mercury or Quicksilver, yep. right? And so think about what happens if you've ever busted open a thermometer. Um, surely none of you all have done that, but hopefully all of you all have done that. Yeah. Like what kind Whenever of you're a kid. that kind of curiosity is? Yeah, I remember busting open. Uh, you know, like, I would actually be shocked if somebody hadn't done that. Like, well, think how, about, like how do you see that right in there? Like, and that's supposed to be a metal. Like, how, and it's yet it's a liquid. But how do you? How do you not bust that thing open and right. look at it? Like, well, I on. remember that was my like kind of thought. I'm like, man, this looks like metal, but it's like liquid looking. And I bust it open. You know, if you drop it into a bowl, um, what happens is it it rolls around the dish, it divides up into droplets, and then it it recombines very swift with swiftly, right? And so. That's what Mercury does. That's the characteristics of Mercury. And that's the kind of influence that Mercury uh, puts out onto the creation, right? It, it, he is, it has the tendency to divide and then reunite. And so for that reason, Mercury was known as the god of the crossroads, right? Even in uh, Greek mythology, um, you know, Mercury was called Hermes. But... Um, People would set up boundary markers and signposts at important junctions to Hermes, right? And so that's a, a characteristic of this planet. It, it's 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 associated with um, with uh, dividing and then recombining. So if you were ever at a crossroad crossroads in your life, right, where you have to pick and choose something, right? You have to be wise and exercise discernment. You've got to make a choice. You could call that a Mercurian moment, right? Yep. Um, but also, uh, you know, Mercury was also called the god of of scholarship and learning. And you can see how that is associated with the crossroads idea, right? You have to use discernment. You have to use wisdom to figure out which way you should go. So that's associated with learning and, and uh, that kind of thing. And um, so, yeah, so Mercury was also thought to rule over the constellation of Gemini, um, the twins, you know, Castor and Pollux and... The horseman and the boxer, and you know, in Acts twenty eight eleven, you see the apostle Paul on a ship 
um, that has the twin brothers mentioned on the the figurehead of the ship. So it's pretty it's pretty interesting. But yep. uh, now, um, Mercury is associated with Wednesday. Okay, that's he's associated with Wednesday. That's that's his day. And the reason why is Wednesday is actually Woden's day. So Woden, if you've you know listened to our episode on Norse mythology, Woden is Odin, and Odin was the Norse equivalent to the Roman Mercury. And we also talked about in that episode too that the Norse came from the Trojans in their yep. universal history. So you can see how some of these gods kind of end up copy and pasted up there. So we're we're really tying everything yep. together, and I really love that. <laughs> like everything we've done yep. over like the past six months is like getting tied together here in the Seven Heavens episode. It's it's like a Christmas gift. We've just tied it all up and put a bow on it. Um, <laughs> you know, but um. So anyway, um, but yeah, so he Mercury's the qualities are swiftness, heraldry, skill and speech, learning, um, the ability to divide and then recombine, recombine, right? That's that's Mercury. That's how pre Copernican uh, people and astronomers thought about Mercury. Still wait, <clears throat> waiting for you to let us have our hermetic order. Uh, now that we're talking about Hermes and learning, right? And learning and learning mystic and knowledge. knowledge and, yeah. yeah, there you go. So the third constantly shot down on that. Constantly shot down on that. So the third heavens is Venus. Okay, and so Venus appears brightly in the sky at dusk and at dawn. Right, it's the first and the the last star to to kind of go in for the night and for the you know the morning. And uh, you know it's it's so it's for that reason it's known as the morning star and the evening star. And obviously that's you know associated with Lucifer, right? Yeah. You know. Uh, morning star, you son of the morning, you know, that kind of thing. And, you know, uh, mythologically, though, the evening star was associated with uh, uh, Hesperus. And uh, Hesperus was a deity who had uh, a western garden in which his daughters, uh, the, Hesper- the Hesperides, guarded a grove of immortality giving apple trees. Hmm. Hmm. And um, so, even though they well, were, that's the episode, guys. That's all you need to know, right there. Like, there you go. <laughs> right. And so, but here's the interesting thing, though. Even though, obviously, you know, Lucifer and you know Hesperus were both conceived as male spiritual beings, right? Yeah. Uh, the special beauty of Venus in the sky led it to being thought of as a feminine planet, um, the goddess of Amorous sexuality. Yep. I was trying to think of another way to say that. Look <laughs> at Aphrodite. Right. Well, that, literally so, Venus. So Venus ends up getting associated with Aphrodite, right? Yeah. Um, Aphrodite, and then um, you know uh, other others as well. Like you know, Greek. The uh, Aphrodite is the Greek version of Venus, right? Um, now here's the interesting thing as well. Um, so she's asso- associated with the metal copper. Okay, and so uh, copper in Latin is uh, cyprium, and it was a, a, a metal that was, if you've ever heard read the Bible and you've read of Cyprus in, in the Bible, Cyprus was famously rich in copper. And, um, you know, they had, they had temples there to actually yeah. these, they, they, it was kind of the patron of these islands. But um, anyway, but uh, yeah. So, 
uh, Homer, you know, also, you know, who wrote, uh, you know, the Iliad and the Odyssey associated Aphrodite with laughter. She's the goddess of sweetness, of love. And this is uh, Michael Ward, Ward's words here, but warm wetness. Hmm. So you can Warm see, wetness. So huh? you can see how that uh, associates with uh, fertility and things like that. Yeah, right? I'm just gonna let that one simmer there for him. There you go. Um, but so she was known as also known as Fortuna Minor because she was thought to bring about fortunate events. Right. So. Um, so yeah, that's uh, that's interesting. Um, you know, in the Bible. Uh, you know, in Revelation twenty two sixteen, um, Christ actually gets the title of Morning Star attributed to him. Yep, and he promises to give the Morning Star to the saints who keep his words to the end in Revelation two twenty eight. So that's kind of fortunate. It absolutely <laughs> is. Um, yeah, uh, you know, Peter also prays that the morning star would rise in the hearts of his fellow Christians in Second uh, Peter one nineteen too. So that's pretty interesting. Yeah, but um, Venus is associated with Friday. Okay, um, and so Friday is named after the Norse goddess Frigg, and Frigg is the Norse equivalent of the Roman Venus. So again, major ties here between Norse mythology and Roman mythology because yep. they come from the same place. And then they all come from Atlantis. The mm-hmm. end. There you go. There you go. Um, in in the Ransom trilogy, Lewis calls Venus Perilandria, or Pel- sorry, uh, Lewis calls Venus Perilandra. So, okay. So now we're going to move on to the next heaven, which is Sol, the sun. And hmm. so it, it's so funny to me because as, as moderns, like we hear that and they're like, the sun's a star. It's not yeah. a planet. But that's not how pre-Copernican people thought about um, the sun. That's not how they thought about it. They saw it as a uh, one of the heavenly spheres. Okay? And so... To pre-Copernican astronomers, soul was the eye and the mind of the holy universe. So his spear was the, the, the heaven of theologians and philosophers, and it produced the most noblest of all metals. And you mentioned this one earlier. That's gold. Yep. Right. And um, A lot of very masculine attributes. Yeah. Um, soul's characteristics was thought to influence and to illuminate the human mind by making people wise and and all of that, right? Um, soul was thought to to burn away the base things, uh, the base passions like greed and and profit. Um, Lewis put it this way in his his. Uh, it's a refining poem. property. That's, that's right. Yes, yep. it's refining. And think about how the process, even in alchemy. T- yeah. Taking the metals to gold, right? The well, that's what the, yep. the, right, like you're you're on the lookout for the philosopher's stone that allows you to turn, yep. you know, the base metal in, into gold, right? And think about the process of gold, right? The, you, there's there's a, a refining process, right? The, the dropping off of dross and and all of that kind of stuff. Uh, Lewis said this in his poem called "The Planets." He said that soul hurts and he humbles. So that's playing into this whole theme here, the whole characteristics of soul. Now, the Greek equi- uh, the Greek equivalent to soul was Apollo, and um, he was also known as um, Apollo 
chrysosomes, which meant Apollo, the golden locks. So you can see this idea of gold. You've yeah. got John Chrysostom, who is the, you know, the golden mouth, golden tongued, yeah. you know, uh, preacher in the Christian tradition. Right. Um, you know, uh, very, very interesting. But but soul was also thought to bring about fortunate events. So his position was kind of in the middle of the planetary ranks. And uh, it, that kind of denoted a special kind of dignity and, and honor. Um, it's kind of like the positioning of the heart in the middle of the body and like a king dwelling among his subjects, right? Yep. Um, and in the Bible, the sun is a frequent uh, symbol for the divine nature and Jesus Christ, you know, declares that he is the light of the world, right? So you can, you can see all this kind of at work here, but, um, the day associated with soul, obviously is Sunday, right? Yep. Very, no, <clears throat> pretty straightforward, pretty straightforward there. Sunday. So, yep. Yeah. In, in, uh, Lewis's ransom tri- trilogy, he calls soul Arbol. So you can kind of see a little bit of uh, similarities there, but the next heaven we're going to look at is Mars, and uh, this is a, an infamous one. Mars is known as Infortuna Minor <clears throat> to pre-Copernican astronomy, yeah. considered the bad planet. Right? This is think about who Mars is. I mean, Mars yeah. is the god of war, right? And the Greek equivalent to Mars is um, Aries. Aries, that's right. And so, but basically, the the people, from what I understand, didn't think that his influences were bad in in and of themselves. But but basically, those influences could be put to bad use yeah. by people on Earth. Like you would petition Mars or Ares to have a, a warrior spirit mm-hmm. to defend your people, right? But also, you could be drunk with war. You could give into the power. shadow. Yeah, give into the shadow. Right, yeah. we're talking about archetypes now. Yep. Right. Um, but yeah, that's that's exactly right. But but so for that reason, um, Mars was thought to enable hard but necessary tasks to be accomplished. Yep. So even though he would bring unfortunate events, he also brought the ability to be disciplined, to be ordered, to be rhythmical, and freedom from anxiety. I remember uh, reading in the occult that you would petition Mars or Aries to remove as a means of removing obstacles. Yeah, well, that that plays into this here. Yep. Like, it he, it was thought that he gives discipline and order, right? The but there was also a downside. He could also be the one creating the obstacles. Right. Like, yeah. So. Yeah. Yep. And um, now, the Norse equivalent of Mars was the god Tyre. Okay. And Tyre was also, uh, you know, a war god. And... You know, that's how we get the name Tuesday. It's Tire Day. So that's that's where it comes from. Um, the, uh, the metal associated with Mars is obviously iron. You make yep. you know, weaponry out of iron, right? But um, Michael Ward says this, In the New Testament, the Christian life is sometimes described by means of military metaphors, most notably in the description of the armor of God. It includes the breastplate of righteousness, the helmet of salvation, the shield of faith. The Greek version of Mars was Ares, and it was at the Areopagus, the field of Ares, or Mars Hill, that St. Paul gave his speech to the men of Athens about the unknown God. Hmm. So you even see uh, Ares... 
in some ways playing a part here, right? Yep. You've got this field dedicated to Ares, and there St. Paul is waging spiritual warfare on Ares and the unknown yep. god, declaring the god who has revealed himself, and that's you know the, the triune god. So very fascinating stuff here. Yeah. Um, the next heaven, and one of my favorites here, is Jupiter. Oh, boy. The king planet. The king planet. That's right. It would be your favorite. It would be, right. And so Jupiter is known as Fortuna Major, right, to pre-Copernican astronomers. He was the best planet. He was the sovereign king of the seven heavens. Uh, His kingliness was that of a king of peace at leisure, enthroned and serene. So one of the names given to Jupiter was Jove. He was jovial, right? He was all of these things, serene, leisurely, at peace, laughing, you know, that kind of thing. And so Jove's influence or Jupiter's influence is he made people cheerful and festive, but also tranquil as well. It's thought of as a a temperate planet, right? Because it's positioned between the hotness and the warlikeness of Mars and then the coldness of Saturn, which we're going to talk about here in a minute is the the seventh heaven. Um, But he brought, you know, peaceful days and prosperity. And the metal associated with Jupiter was tin. And so, um, you know, uh, there was uh, the the Cornwall and the, the Scilly Islands on the west coast of England they were uh, rich in deposits of metal, and they were actually known at one point as tin land, so you could get a lot of tin there. Jupiter's also associated with things like th- uh, thrones and oaks and oak trees and feasts and eagles and trumpets and banners waving and all of those types of things. And so here's an interesting thing. I didn't know this until I read this this week uh, from Michael Ward. The name of the Old Testament character Melchizedek means my king is Jupiter. Hmm. That's fascinating. And so I looked into it, this. It is, yeah. So I, so I preached uh, on Melchizedek because we did a series in Genesis. And you know the most common translation that I came across was um, King of Righteousness. And that's how I preached it. And I, I did look into it, and my king is Jupiter actually is a possible translation of the name Melchizedek. So um, Melchi means um, my king, and um, Sadik actually can mean Jupiter or righteousness. So Jupiter in Hebrew is called Zadik. That's the Hebrew word for the planet Jupiter. So (laughs) that's how he ends up with the translation, my king is Jupiter. And that's that's pretty fascinating. So so, uh, Jupiter is associated with Thursday, which is obviously Thor's day. Right, and Thor is the Norse equivalent to the Roman Jupiter. Right, so um, we'll get to the the last of the seven heavens here before we kind of get into the Imperium, and also Zeus. Yeah, right. Also Zeus. That's yep. right. Yep. So Saturn was known as Infortuna Major. So there's you know. In Fortuna major and minor, and then there's Fortuna major and minor, right? Yep. So you've there's a little bit of a distinction here. Some bring major uh, fortune and in fortune, and then some bring minor fortune and in fortune. But um, he was known as the worst planet 
okay? Uh, <laughs> the worst. Because <laughs> huh. uh, he would bring major uh, unfortunate, unfortunate events. And um, But he said that uh, the influence of Saturn was was that it would bring uh, he could bring sickness and old age and ugliness and disaster and melancholy and and death but if received aright the influence might also bring about godly sorrow penitential wisdom and contemplative insight right so you can you yep. see here you can take these these events these in, unfortunate events if used rightly they can bring about discipline and godliness, right? And uh, and also, if you don't receive the fortunate events rightly, they can also be they can almost almost be tragic in some ways, right? Um, but if you've ever seen the the mythological character of Father Time, right, which is basically like a kind of like the Grim Reaper, right, walking around with the the scythe, this old man, he's bones, right? If he's the Grim Reaper, um, this is actually based on earlier pictures of Saturn. Um, so, um, but, uh, Saturn is associated with the metal lead because of its heaviness and its dullness in color. It's gray, right? So you can see how that relates to father time and how that relates to disaster and old age and sickness and ugliness and melancholy and death, right? It's gray. It's heavy. You see, you can see that there's an obvious connection there. Um, so. Um, interesting. Uh, so, yep. So, uh, the prophet Amos in Amos five twenty six actually spoke against his people for worshiping Saturn because apparently they were tempted to that at some point. And um, so, yeah. But um, Saturn is obviously related to Saturday. Saturn Day yep. is, is that. So, okay. Um, you know, and if you you get to looking here, um. You get to uh, uh, above this, um, you know, you've got the stars and the constellations and, and all that. And that's got various names throughout the Christian tradition. And then above that, the seven heavens, what you have is called the Imperium. And that is the place where God dwells in the highest of heavens, right? Um, it blew, this, this really blew me away. And the reason why it blew me away is because as I've been digging into the seven heavens in the Christian tradition, um, I, I found that like it's everywhere. Like Christians always, all over the place, referred to the place where God dwelled in the highest heaven, in the third heaven, right? That is above the the second heaven where the seven heavens are at. That yeah. was complicated. Um, they referred to it as the Empyrean, and like it was just common knowledge to them. And I, I remember coming across that and just thinking, "Wow!" Like, um. Like I've never heard of this term, and it's just it just goes to show how we've we've lost a lot of this stuff, right? We've lost this cosmology, and um, I think that we're actually a whole lot worse off for it um, because I think that it's really led to the disenchantment of Christendom today, and actually I think it's had a lot of downstream effects, Richie. I think that because we no longer have this cosmology, we no longer understand biblical symbolism. So here's what I want to say. Um, one of the things that I've been recently meditating on and thinking about is that um, 
your cosmology actually determines a whole lot of your theology. And I've actually come across that thought from Jonathan Peugeot and Matthew Peugeot, and they talk about that, that theology is really downstream from cosmology. And whenever I look at the Bible, I, I've come to the conclusion that's, that's true. And here's the reason why. Whenever I look at the Bible, I see that a lot of the, the, the patterns and the sacred architecture there comes from this cosmology. So like this okay so we've got three heavens right and in the seven and in the the second heaven there's seven celestial spheres right um that structure that three tiered cosmos gets repeated in the way that God structures the heavens and the earth right the cosmology of earth right so think about it like we've talked about this before we have heavens above Earth beneath, waters beneath the earth. And then that pattern also gets repeated out in the construction of Eden. You've got the Garden of Eden at the highest point on top of the mountain. And then you've got the land of Eden below that. And then you've got the rest of the earth, right? And the waters flow down, flow from the garden. They flow down and they go out and they water the earth. So Eden is like the highest heaven, it's like the Imperium. It's the place where God dwells. And that's the reason why God puts a cherubim to block the way back to it. Right? Because cherub, think of the celestial hierarchy, right? God is enthroned in heaven in the Imperium. And he's surrounded by cherubs and, and seraphim and thrones, right? And so that's why God puts that there. That was the place where he he resided on earth right like that's the holy mountain yeah um <clears throat> and even think about it this way um well, well let me get my and then you get to the construction of the temple and the tabernacle right and they're constructed in the same way they have the same exact three-tiered cosmology almost right it's uh you know you've got the the court of the gentiles right where the places as far as the gentiles can can come and you know there's they can't come any further and then you've got the holy place where the menorah is at with the seven lights on it. Yep. It's interesting. Um, and then you've got the, the, the Holy of Holies, which is also where the Ark of the Covenant sits. And what's sitting on the Ark of the Covenant? Have you ever seen a picture of the Ark of the Covenant? Yep. Two cherubs. Facing the mercy seat. It's not two babies on a cloud either. It's right. Yeah, yeah it's uh, two two cherubs, and um, you can see the pattern here, right? There's this yeah. three tiered cosmology that is this biblical blueprint that's getting played out on Earth. And you can even see yeah, that in cherubs the- guarding the the Ark of the Covenant, and then cherubs guarding the way to the Imperium. So. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's right. Yes, exactly. Yes. Yep. And it's fascinating. And now, because we don't have this cosmology, we can't understand a lot of that stuff. And we can't understand yep. biblical symbolism <clears throat> anymore because of it either. That's yeah, true. So take these patterns I just gave you and stack them on top of each other. And you'll see the way that the Bible talks about stuff. Right. So, for example, you've got, you know, the the... Dude, if they literally took these categories and these things like a lens and mm-hmm. then reread scripture in its yeah. entirety, right? What they'll pull from it is just 
like, how did I miss this before? So it answers the question, why does the menorah in the holy place of the temple, why does it look like a tree, but why does it also have seven lights on it? Well, the answer is because in the second part in the second part of Eden, in the land of Eden, there's a, a tree there. Right? You've got the you know, you got the tree of life, and then you got the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and you've got the fig tree, that whole thing. Um, so it's structured like a tree, like in like in Eden, like in the land of Eden. But it's got seven lights on it because in the second heaven, you've got seven celestial spheres. So why is it that the menorah has, like, why is it the way that it is? It's because it's taking this cosmology and it's it's playing it out at a microcosmic level in the temple. It's like, not only is the temple ascending back up into Eden, right? Because that's it's structured. It's the same pattern as Eden, right? Like you, you walk from the land and you walk from in the, the land of Eden or the world, you walk into the land of Eden, then you walk into the to the garden, right? That's that's what happens when you walk from the court of the Gentiles because the world is where the Gentiles are at. Yeah. And you walk into the you know holy place where the garden's at, and that's why you've got the menorah there. And then you walk into the place where God dwells, that's where the garden's at. Um, not only is it ascending back up the holy mountain of Eden, but it's also an ascending the seven heavens all the way up to the Empyrean where God's at. Yep. That is amazing. It is. That's yeah. that's a, a, a shocking revelation to people. And um and here's the deal, man. Like this is the Like one. I remember when we first got these 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 categories and these lenses sort of put in place. Do you remember us going back through scripture and looking at the temple layout and all these things and just just fascinated about all the symbolism we could pull from it and the the deeper and higher meanings from those things. Yeah. Yep, I I sure do. And um you know, and this is just the reality. This is the way that the biblical writers viewed the world. I'm not the only person who said that the menorah is, you know, is a tree that's the seven heavens like it's you can you can see it in an experiential level. Go stand under a gigantic fruit tree and look up. Go stand under a huge, go to an apple orchard and stand under a big apple tree. Does it not look like a microcosm of the world? You've got the foliage overhead, right? You've got the canopy over your head of the tree, and it's like the firmament, heavens, and you look at the fruit on it, and they're like stars fixed in the firmament, right? Like even Peter Lightheart in his Revelation commentary talks about. That same exact connection. So that's not just something that I've made yep. up and drawn up. I mean, that's in scholarly circles. Um, and the fascinating thing is, is that um, not only did the ancients think that the planets exerted some sort of influence over earthly matters, but that's in the Bible too. And that's going to be strange to people because a lot of people are going to associate that with astrology, right? Yep, I was. Uh, we've had this discussion, yeah, a ton. Even going into like the wise men and the, you know following the star and mm-hmm. things like that. But I'm not sure if they're ready for a sketchy Richie's take on astrology yet. Right. Well, I'll just give them some, I, and, I, and I'll draw a <clears throat> distinction here okay. between pagan astrology and and right. biblical 
astrology, if you want to call it that, or we'll call it astronomy, whatever you want to call it, astral theology, it doesn't matter. Whatever language you like, take that. Yeah, something. Take, take it. But we see in Scripture that, that the stars and the planets all exert some kind of influence on earth and that ancient people thought this in judges 520 it says they fought from heaven the stars in their courses against Sisera. the stars in heaven they fight against someone yep job 38 31 mentions the sweet influence of pleiades that's as clear as can be, the sweet influence of Pleiades. Wow. This is the ancient worldview, as uncomfortable as it might be. But let me say this. There is a distinction between the way that the Bible lays out this stuff and the way that paganism does this stuff. Yes, the I think that the, the pagan and the Christian can both agree, if we're reading the Bible and taking it seriously, yep. that the heavens exert some sort of influence over earth. The difference is, is that Christians would say, yes, but they don't control our destiny. God alone is the one who controls our destiny, yep. whereas <clears throat> the pagan would probably yep. say you know, something else. So, well, yeah, that your destiny is like what they say, it's, it's written in the stars, like it's fully foretold and laid out in in the cosmic processes. So, yeah. Yep. Yeah. But we can find common ground in some ways, yes. but that's where we diverge and that's where we take a different approach. But um it's fascinating. It's fascinating stuff. Um now, you may be saying and thinking I mean, do we want to talk about the wise men and the star? I mean, I mean you, you can if you want to. I mean, oh, I can, huh? I'll, I'll chime so in. So you don't want to take that heat, do you? Well, no, obviously that star, the, okay, the Magi are apparently Yeah, pagans. let's even talk about what, well, who the, the Magi well, are apparently the, and the, what they're doing. Apparently the Magi are pagans. They're If you type in Mad, if you if you do... I mean, the Magi. Okay, the Magi are astrologers. Let's. They're basically yeah, Magi astrologers. Is where That's we get what our, they're doing. Magi is where we get our word magician from. Yep. They are astrologers. Yep. They are magicians. They are contemplators of heaven. They are mystics. Okay? And apparently, their astrology is good enough that they're able to follow the king star all the way right. to the true king. And not only did they know what the star represented, right. but they knew who they were going to find at the other end of this thing. When they were going to find... The King of Kings, like uh, the heralded by the star, they they understood the symbolism there. Yeah. They were able to read that in the stars. Yeah, right. Mike Heiser has a whole a whole take on that, and I don't know if I quite agree with him, but he talks about that he thinks that that happened in September, and that um, you know that uh, it was. Uh, I, I can't. He talks about it in reversing Hermone that it was. Uh, you know, the King star, I'd have to go back and revisit it. I'll just be honest with you. It's not fresh in my mind, but yeah, I just, I, the whole September date, I just don't, I'd rather stick with old mother church and her wisdom on the, the dating and the birth of Christ. But, um, but anyway, but let me say this, you guys may be thinking, okay, you guys just gave me a, uh, are you talking about Regulus? The star? Ah, I think it was Regulus, yeah. It's like the king star. Yeah, yeah. I think so. I think it was Regulus. Yep. And 
yeah, I think that that's, that was the case he's making. Don't quote me on it because I don't have reversing hormone here open in front of me. I have it on my shelves, but I'm not going to go get it. It's at like this Regulus, point. Regal, like King. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that that was his case. Yeah. But apparently, you know, the Magi are smart enough with their astrological yeah, stuff. No matter what it turns out to be, they read this sign correctly. Right. And yeah. even if you look at the gifts that they knew to bring this king. Their kingly gifts. They knew, in essence, who they were coming to see. Like, f- from the gold to the frankincense to the myrrh, they knew that this was a king, this was a priest, mm-hmm. this was, you know, someone yeah. who was going to make a sacrifice. Like, they brought these gifts, even the gifts they bring mm-hmm. are symbolic of the knowledge that they pulled from, right. from the stars. That's right. So, yep. Yep. That's right. Now, some of you guys may be thinking, okay, well, you just gave me an overview of the Greco-Roman Norse, you know. And my p- contact pagan. information will be in the show notes of how you can book an astrological reading with Sketchy Richie. No, no, we ain't doing that. Oh, now. okay. Now, uh, but let me say this. Um, Christians did not reject this model of the cosmos. Okay? They didn't. It's in the Bible, folks. Like, if take it. If you don't take anything else here, take the the bit that we gave you about the temple and the menorah and the seven lights on the tree. Like, why does it have the seven lights on it? Why is it like a tree? It's obviously because this three-tiered cosmology is being replayed at a microcosmic level in Israel's temple. Yep. It's the only way you can answer that question. It's the only way you can answer that question. But let me say this. Christians did not reject this model of the cosmos. What they did is they do what they always do. And they do what we're going to do. Yep. They're going to baptize it. (laughs) They're going to baptize it. And you find this done. Dude, we can get into so much. Like the 12 apostles, the 12 tribes, the 12 Mm. zodiac signs. Oh, there's so So much. much. There's so much to get So much that I want to, but we're already so far into this thing. It's... Right. Well, and the Bible mentions the sign of the zodiac too. Yeah. And if you go back into the, you know, the synagogues and the simple, literally second you temple see their period, own version of it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. If you go back, you know, the synagogues, you know, dating back, you know, um, you know, all the way back even to Jesus' day, they've got Hebrew pictures um, and art depicting the twelve constellations. So, or not the constant, yeah, the constant, yeah, the zodiac is what it is. So. Um, but I think that we find the Christian synthesis of this par excellence in Dante's Paradiso. Now, I, now let me go ahead and say, I, Josh has come to his. I'm also Italian, so I'm a little oh, bit. I, biased. I knew it was coming. I'm also Italian, so I'm a little bit biased. Um, but I, I think that, um, I think that it is. I think what he just said the there. He's synthesis. secretly Roman Catholic. Well, that is in my my tradition because my grandfather, my my real grandfather, did come from Rome. So, and my family on that side is Roman Catholic. Um, but I'm not in any danger hmm. of going Roman Catholic. Uh, I would classify myself as a a Western Christian, is what I would call myself. Sorry, Eastern Orthodox friends who are listening. Um, I'm just way too deep into the Western Christian tradition to be be tempted to Eastern Orthodoxy. But, However, uh, I'm all ears. Tempt me away. There you go. Um, so, in Dante's Paradiso, it is a beautiful Christian synthesis of this. It's baptized. So, the moon in Dante's work, so we've got it here in front of us. 
So in, if you don't know what Paradiso is, basically what happens is in Paradiso, Dante ascends the seven heavens all the way up to the Empyrean where God is at. Okay, It's very Enochian. Okay? Uh, it's very much along the lines of what you see in Second Enoch. Um, but in um, Paradiso... Uh, you see Dante's ascent to the first heaven, to the moon, or to Luna. And there he encounters the spirits of those who took monastic vows but were forced to violate them. Okay? Mm-mm. So think of like uh, monastic people and, you know, <clears throat> they, uh, yeah. they basically... Uh, you know, some ruling king comes in and forces, you know, he, them, to, forces them to violate. And, yeah. You know, or pledge allegiance to a pledge allegiance a, a, a foreign god, and, or or yeah. uh, you know, or um, or a, a a king or you know a warrior comes in and takes a, a nun or something like that and makes her become his wife, so she's had to violate her religious vows, that kind of thing. Dante associates those types of people. Uh, the people who were forced to break their monastic vows or whatever religious vows it is, they are the spirits that reside in the first heaven. Now, a lot of people may be saying, well, that doesn't sound a whole lot. That whole doesn't sound very fair, right? But if you if you go and you read Paradiso, he also talks about that at the same time, they're also present in the Empyrean with God on thrones as well. But that's... Uh, yeah. So it's, it's people who have... Betrayed their vows. Yeah, but he also talks about that. That's interesting, though, and it's linked to the moon. And it's linked to well, that's right. So and, it's linked to inconstancy. Yeah, and also that's the synthesis. It's a thing in magic that the reason that silver repels the forces of evil or is, or is a bane to evil forces mm. is because the curse that was the placed silver on bullet silver, for the werewolf. Yeah, it was because of a curse that was placed on silver after it was used in the betrayal of Jesus. Mm. Yeah, by Judas. Oh yeah, with the, the the pieces of silver, right? Yep. Yeah, you can see the the bullet, the silver bullet for the werewolf. So too, there, right? after that, it's we got it's a little becomes, cryptid stuff in here. Yeah, it's become this bane to evil. Mm. Yeah, that's that's fascinating. Yeah, um, but you know, he talks about Dante. You know, he 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 does a great job at asking philosophical questions in Paradiso because he he like anticipates the the question of like, well, that's not fair, you know, or whatever. Um, and he talks about, no, 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 no. These people have become perfectly aligned with the will of God now. They have died. They have went to be with the Lord. And now their wills are aligned with the will of the one. And they are perfectly happy, perfectly content with what God has bestowed to them. And he talks about that, you know, even though they, they, uh, they, you know, the spirits are now associated with, with this level in the heavenly hierarchy, they are also still yet present with God in some metaphysical way in the Empyrean on thrones. Yeah. So, and then he ascends to, you know, the the second heaven, and in the second heaven, he uh, he encounters. Uh, hold on a second here. I gotta, so it's like Mercury, right? Yeah. <clears throat> Spirits uh, who were, for the love of fame, yeah. achieved great deeds. Right. That's it. Yeah. It's it's for the spirit of those who uh, who loved fame, um, did yeah did great things. So they did stuff. They did good things for the Lord, but they also wanted 
uh, fame for that. And and you see, you know, certain figures there associated with it in in the Paradiso, but um, you know, but this also relates to the characteristics of of Mercury in some ways, right? Um, it with the the idea of of heraldry. These were people who heralded something, right? Um, so that's who Dante encounters in in the second heavens, and in the third heaven, whenever he ascends to the the third celestial sphere, which is uh, Venus, there he encounters the spirits of lovers. Right, and uh, again, remember Venus. Right, remember the characteristics of Venus. Venus is the goddess of sexuality. Of of uh, I, I think that Michael Ward even said uh, <clears throat> no, 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 no. It wasn't this one, but uh, she the qualities of sweetness and warmth and beauty and laughter and motherliness <clears throat> and fertility and vitality and creativity. Yep. You could see why lovers would be associated with Venus, right? I think that uh, Romeo uh, might have even been mentioned as being in there as well. Um, but yeah. So then Dante ascends to the fourth heaven, the fourth celestial sphere. And there he encounters, that's soul. Yep. And there he encounters <clears throat> the great doctors of the church. Yeah, theologians, the theologians, fathers of the church. Yeah, and one of them in particular that's named is St. Thomas, Thomas Aquinas. Aquinas. Yep. Right. And think about that. Right. Think about the qualities of soul. Right. The qualities of soul and the sun are wisdom. Right. Um, enlightenment. That's what just think about what the sun does. What does it do? It brings illuminates. It illuminates. Yep. It brings enlightenment to things. And so that's why he associates the doctors and the, the theologians of the church with the sun instead of. You know the Roman, you know the pagan gods. You can see what he's doing here. He's yeah. taking these qualities, brings light, truth, order to chaos. Yep. That's right. Yep. And so then Dante ascends to the fifth heaven, to Mars, the war planet. And guess who he finds there? He finds the spirits of the martyrs and the crusaders who died fighting for the true faith. Hmm. Yeah, so good right there. Right. <laughs> I love it. Right. Yeah. yeah. And think of like, and Mars is associated with what? With with uh, with war and like military action, military and, action and, yep. and all of that, right? And conquest, conquest, and battle, and, yep. battle and, and all of that, iron and you know, and it's a beautiful thing that Dante is doing here. He's taking this, he's taking this, and he's synthesizing it, and he's making it Christian, and he's giving a reenchanted view of the cosmos that's not pagan. It's it's a beautiful beautiful thing. Yep. And then, you know, and then he uh, you know he ascends on up to the to the sixth heaven, which is Jupiter, and there he finds and sees the spirits of righteous kings and and rulers. And what was it that Jupiter was? That's Jove, right? Yep. It's Jove, <clears throat> and Jove is the 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 king planet, right? Um, Joe, Jove is associated with kingliness and festal joy and and uh, summertime tranquility and you know he's the sovereign of the seven heavens and he's sitting around leisurely, a king at peace, enthroned and serene, and that's why Dante finds righteous Christian kings and rulers there. And then he ascends on up to. Go ahead. Oh, the seventh heaven. The seventh heaven. And there, at supposedly 
the worst planet, which is Saturn, right? Yep. In, in Fortuna Major. Who is it that he finds there? He finds the contemplatives, the spirits of the contemplatives. Right? Now think about the qualities of Saturn again, right? Or uh, if Saturn, yeah. He brought about godly sorrow, or he brought about disaster and old age and sickness and melancholy and death. But if received aright, it could also bring about godly sorrow, penitential practices, yes, penitential wisdom and contemplative insight. Basically, the fruits of monasticism is is what it is. And it's interesting because in in paganism, like in the occult, like Saturn was viewed. To embody like the sage or the wizard or right. the the keepers of sacred knowledge. Yeah, that's right. And then he, you know, he ascends on up, and you know, there, uh, you know, he meets Saint Peter and Saint James and Saint John, and you know, and then he encounters God in the Empyrean in the tenth heaven, right? So you can see he's got the ten heaven model, yeah, because um, he he ascends on up, you know, past the Prima Mobile is what it's called, where the you know the the mobile stars and all that are at. And he uh, he encounters God in the 10th heaven, in the river of light of heaven, in the courts of heaven and paradise. And so it's, uh, and there he, you know, he encounters the virgin and, you know, and, and all of that. And uh, I think that this is amazing. I, I honestly, I, I think that, you know, obviously, you know, uh, as Protestants, there's some things that we'd probably differ here and there with with Dante because, you know, Dante had his spats with the Roman Catholic Church, but, you know, uh, I think ultimately at the end of the day, he was a Roman Catholic. He was an Italian, you know. Um, but I mean, I th- maybe other people <laughs> would have more differences with him than I would, yeah. but we'll go with it. But I think that what Dante gives us here, and again, this isn't Dante's idea. Dante's got this, I mean, he he distills it down in his Paradiso, but he's not the first person to say this. This goes way back. I mean, he's got the same structure as Enoch does in Second Enoch. And Enoch goes back even before the Second Temple period, if you hold to it being uh, an oral tradition that's very old that was finally pinned down you know, in the Second Temple period. But here's what I think that Dante gives us if we come to Paradiso with open eyes. He gives us a re-enchanted view of the cosmos that we currently don't have with the cosmology that we typically do or that we currently do. You know, I'm very thankful for the work of apologists. But the Kalam cosmological argument that William Lane Craig is peddling is not the same cosmological model that the Christian tradition has had throughout its history. And honestly, it's it's quite materialistic in some ways. You know, all of a sudden, God snapped his fingers and there was this bang and all the matter exploded into existence and it did its thing and God ordered it and, you know, all of that. Um, and there, But that's it, right? That's it. There's nothing more to the heavens other than this vacuous space, these planets that have nothing to do with our yeah. spirituality it was sort of one-off act of will right, right. that yeah. set everything in motion there's That's no right. higher meaning no right. symbolism no notice also what this gives you too it gives you a very very practical way to think about divine counsel theology 
how is God's divine counsel at work in the cosmos right now? Right? How is it that the saints are exerting the dominion of Christ, the the eschatological church, or um, you know, the church triumphant, which whatever language you want to use, like how are they exerting influence, the reign and the dominion of Christ over the creation right now? Well, you know, with the current cosmological model that we have, it's just left to kind of speculation and yeah. it's not really there. Yeah. Because the the planets are nothing more than just these spheres that are in the heavens that are very disconnected from us. But if you take the, the traditional Christian cosmology, it gives a place for them. It gives a place for the great the great cloud of witnesses. It gives a place for the saints, right? And you could even see why in higher church traditions, and this isn't just in Roman Catholicism or in in Eastern Orthodoxy, but it's even in Anglicanism too. Why? Why people would petition the help of saints? Yeah, asking the saints <clears throat> to pray for them. Yeah, I mean that's not like they're any less part of the body or any less alive. Just just given their current position in eternity. I mean, yeah. I mean, I mean, if you, I mean, just think about it, right? Um, if you're at a crossroads in your life, right? You go to your friend, and be like, hey. Pray for me, right? Like this, yeah. And so if you're at a crossroad, you would think of the saints who, whose spirits are on Saturn, right? Yep. Uh, and you would say, "Hey, pray for me," right? Or if you're needing, um, if you're experiencing hardship, right? Now I'm not saying you should do this. I'm just, I'm just giving you a, a mind into why higher church traditions. Yeah. Would, would do what they're doing, <clears throat> right? Yeah. Because I, I know that we've got a ton of Protestant listeners who who just can't understand, you know. And, and I understand because in our cosmology, we have no place for it. But in this cosmology, there is a place for it. Um, but, you know, I mean, think about it. I mean, you're you're in need of uh, – you're, you're, you're seeking – or, sorry, you, you're, you're experiencing some kind of disaster, Right, you're experiencing some kind of disaster in your life, or or some kind of sickness, and so wouldn't it make sense to, in this view of the world, to ask the saints whose spirits are associated with Saturn to pray for me? Yep. Right, like the contemplatives who are there. Right, or you know, or if you're looking for enlightenment, you have a theological conundrum and you just can't figure it out. Wouldn't it make sense to think of the saints, the divine council members of God, who are on soul, whose spirits are associated with soul, to give you to pray for enlightenment? Hey, pray for me that I would be enlightened. You know, I, to me that makes perfect sense. You know, it may not to everybody else, but to me, this cosmology gives a place for that. And you don't have to take it and you know, uh, turn Mary into the redemptrix. And, but I'm not saying you should do this. I'm, I'm just saying, <laughs> I'm not, I'm not saying, I'm not saying you should, I'm saying, but you can at least yeah. understand <laughs> why somebody from one of these church traditions would, would, um, would, uh, do what they, they do. It yeah. may give you more insight to that. Right. So that those people don't look nearly as weird to you as what well. they have a cosmology where this makes sense. Man, I feel like that there was some more stuff that I wanted to cover with this. I'm trying to think of what it was. I had some stuff that I made notes of in my head, 
I was like, yeah, I'll remember it whenever the time comes. Oh, yeah, I remember what I was going to say. Um, you know, you know, one of the arguments is probably, yeah, but the reason why we don't hold that cosmology anymore is because it's not true. Like the Copernican revolution overturned this idea and, you know, uh, you know, all of this and that. But here's the thing. It is experientially and phenomenologically true. Regardless, you don't experience life in the way that we see in Copernicus's view of the cosmos. What, what, tell me, whenever you wake up in the morning, what do you see? You see the sun rising over your head and, and cycling over the earth in the way that it does. You don't experience the earth rotating around the sun the way that it does, nor do you experience the other planets rotating around the sun the way that they do. Yeah. <clears throat> From your Ex- perspective, feet, Ex- on, feet on the ground. That's it's- right. Experientially, feet on the ground, you experience this cosmology. Yep. It's very geocentric. Right. Yep. Yes. And, you know, this is... Uh, this is what, what makes me laugh about some of the flat earth debates. I was going to say, and, let's talk about flat earth. Well, let's say this is what makes me laugh about some of the flat earth debates and if we've went to the moon or not. And I've seen uh, <laughs> where Bo Kennedy done an episode on flat earth. Yeah. And people were arguing in the comments about the earth being round, the earth being flat. And I even brought up like experientially. Yeah. It, they're not wrong in saying that the earth is flat. Right. Because that's how they experience it. That's how you perspective. Exp- yeah. No matter where you go. Yeah. In an embodied human way. Yeah, unless you literally have a God's eye view and you're right. out in space looking That's right. in. That's exactly you're right. You're not going to see the, the roundness and curvature of the earth, the sphere right. of the earth. That's right. Phenomenologically, experientially, you experience a flat earth. Regardless yep. of where you go, it seems like you are standing on a piece of land that is flat. And the... The heavenly spheres are in the firmament, and the stars are fixed in the firmament. Yep. That's what you experience. You do not have the God's eye view that you think that you do. You don't have it. And so, yeah, so I, I guess that's what I would say is, okay, well, okay, whatever. Like, the, the heliocentrism is true. They're, you know, whatever. But you still don't ex- ex- you still don't experience things in that way because you don't view the Earth as a detached observer from space. You experience it as an embodied Even human the, being. The heliocentric view is a very detached view from the human experience. I mean, yeah, it's like you—it's completely detached from the way the ancients, from anybody, experienced yeah. things. Yeah, and at the very least. Um, it's at least symbolically true. Yeah. It's at least... I mean, it's definitely experientially true, but it's at least symbolically true. This symbolism is all over the Bible. You got to pick or choose, man. Yeah. <laughs> like, you just do. You got to pick or choose. Um, Very tailored to humans yeah. and their experience yeah. on the earth. This, yeah. this cosmology is all over the Bible. So you got to pick or choose, man. Like, you... You you can just ignore the fact that the menorah in the, the holy place of the temple has seven lights on it 
and that it's associated with trees in the garden and that it's also associated with the seven planets in the in the second heaven or you can just accept it um that's what i'm saying that like at the very least like it's symbolically true um and that this is a good way uh, from the human experience the from the experience that God has created us for, this is what is true. We do not view the world as God views the world. Yep. So that's my take on it. I don't know if you got anything else. No, that is the official sword and staff take. There you go. All right. Well then, so I wasn't expecting to touch on some of the stuff we did. We talked about cryptids at one point in here. No, no. We talked about, uh, we hinted at a future maybe episode on, on Mary. Mary and apparitions. <laughs> yeah, you mentioned Mary and apparitions. Fatima at the beginning let's, of this. Let's, I'm ready to dive into those kind of things so bad I can't stand it. Um, yeah, we mentioned, you know, uh, in good good old sword and staff fashion, we gave a synthesis of the old uh, cosmos, and uh, yeah, man, this covered a lot of stuff in an hour and a half. I mean, that's yeah. pretty. That's pretty good, honestly. So, all right. Well, Richie, if you don't have anything else. I don't either. Hmm. Anything else? Oh, yes. We got to give a shout out. Okay. Give a shout. Yes. Yes, we we do. do. Yes. So today's on today's edition of the Sword and Staff, you might have noticed that the music is a little bit different on the introduction and here in a few moments on the conclusion of it. The music that is uh, that you're hearing comes from our friends in the band Scythian. They sent us a, a a preview, an early release of their Christmas album. Christmas album, and uh, we just wanted to promote them to you guys. They are great guys. They're fans of the show. They're doing it's a- like Irish, like folk music and sea shanties. It's basically the sounds of Sword and Staff. Like it's, it's it's us. Yeah, pretty much. And so, um, so go find them on Spotify. Give them a listen. They have some great music on there. Highly recommend them to you guys. And if you don't know, uh, if you're just listening in for the first time, you want to keep up with us. Yeah, we'll we'll link all their stuff in their our stuff in, show in the show notes and things. Yeah. yeah. So also, uh, if you want to keep up with what we're doing here at Sword and Staff, head on over to our Patreon at www.patreon.com/backslash/swordandstafforder. For just five dollars a month, you can get the Sword and Staff uncut. We release episodes there earlier. We release all kinds of bonus content on there. Um, we've everything that we do. We release it there first, and we've got a whole lot of content. We we send out gift boxes to people on occasion. Whenever the the certain seasons roll around, we send out books to people. We send out stickers to people. We send out some T-shirts to people. Um, anything we do, we drop it there first. And we're coming up with uh, here in 2023 some exclusive content that we're going to release for patrons only. There's going to be some uh, patron-only chinwag editions and just some conversations that won't be anywhere else. They'll be available exclusive, exclusively on our Patreon. And uh, so you can find us there. Also, you can find us on social media. On Instagram, we are at Sword and Staff Order. You can find us on Facebook at www.facebook.com backslash Sword and Staff Order. We also have a private Facebook group on Facebook. It's not that lively these days. I think everybody's pretty much migrated to the yeah, dis- Discord. Yeah, everybody's moved to the Discord. Yeah, Discord is uh, constantly going. It is very fast-paced. So, if you want to get in on the, the conversations that are, having, uh, that are happening in the, the Sword and Staff multiverse, head on over to our website at www.swordandstaff.net. 
You can find all of our links to our social media there, also at the top and I think at the bottom of the page. You'll also find a link to our Discord server. You can join into the conversation there. And, uh, yeah, you can join the Sword and Staff multiverse and uh, get plugged in there, have some of these conversations. And so you're not going to get conversations like this anywhere else, only here at the Sword and Staff. So, so Richie, you got anything else to say before we sign off? I don't. All right, guys. Well, thank you so much for listening to this week's edition of the Sword and Staff. We'll see you next week. See you then. See you. The gentleman meekly bowed her head To me the eyes that pleaseth God She said My soul shall love and magnify